This is the 966 episode 44. Richard, what's up, man? How's it going? How are you doing? Coming to you from an undisclosed offsite location. <laughs> A busy week in Saudi Arabia, Richard. This week we'll be discussing the transition of power in the United Arab Emirates following the death of Sheikh Khalifa bin Zayed. Saudi Arabia's interesting foray into the coffee space in the kingdom. And then, of course, we'll get into Yella. A shorter episode this week. We'll be back with more special guests next week. But let's uh, get to it, Richard. What's your one big thing this week? My one big thing, yes, shorter, short but sweet. We're hoping, um, but sweet, yeah. And it's in my offsite location. I'm hoping my laptop doesn't just collapse. So if I disappear, you won't know why. <laughs> um, uh, hold on, let me get to this. Sorry, it's okay. We're all in. Uh, we're all out of sorts this week. It's supposed to be a vacation week for us, um, but the sun never sets on the nine six six. So here we are. <laughs> No, exactly. And and our our newsletter apparently is a daily newsletter, which has to be put out every day. It's a blessing and a curse, but it's all good stuff. Yes, this past week, Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed Al Nahyan, MBZ, was named president of the United Arab Emirates, UAE, following the May 13th passing of his half-brother, ex-president, Sheikh Khalifa bin Zayed Al Nahyan. In fact, MBZ has largely been acting as president uh, uh, since 2014 when uh, Khalifa bin Zayed suffered a debilitating stroke. Uh, at 61, MBZ is well known in Washington, D.C., and, and reporting on his confirmation as president frequently noted the UAE's emergence from a desert outpost to a booming state fueled by Abu Dhabi's oil wealth and Dubai's rise as a trading and financial center. Lucian, as you know, on these occasions, I, I, I'm always struck by the recency of all this um, and how quickly Gulf states such as Saudi Arabia and the UAE have transformed themselves. You, you know, I, I've mentioned probably a few times that Herbert Hoover was U.S. president when Saudi Arabia was recognized as a country in 1932. <clears throat> in the case of UAE and MBZ, that story is even more recent. Uh, MBZ was born in 1961, the third son of Sheikh Zayed bin Sultan al Nahyan, the founder of the UAE, essentially the father of UAE. Um, uh, but, uh, and, and this is sort of a layman's run through in 1961, the UAE didn't, it didn't exist. Um, uh, Abu Dhabi had not even exported any oil. They eventually exported oil in 62. In fact, Sheikh Zayed was not even the ruler of the Abu, Abu Dhabi Emirate at that time. He ousted his brother with the help of the British in 1966, five years after MBZ was born. The UAE was formed in 1971, three years after the British had declared that they could no longer support the so-called crucial states with whom the British had long and established protector treaties going back to the 18th, 1820. So uh, by 1972, seven of these sheikdoms, Dubai, Abu Dhabi, Sharjah, Ajman, Umar Kuwain, and Fujairah, and later uh, in 72, Ras al Khaimah, had come together to form the United Arab Emirates. It's, it's interesting to note, again, if you haven't paid any attention or don't, don't follow the history of the crucial states, uh, Qatar and Bahrain were part of the initial talks to form a United Federation, but dropped out. In 1972, when again, the, the full UAE, as we know it, those, those emirates had come together, uh, MBZ was 11 years old and just returned from being educated at, uh, at Royal Academy in Morocco. He was then schooled in Al Ain and Abu Dhabi and eventually sent to attend Sandhurst, the renowned military academy in the UK, where he graduated in 1979. <clears throat> when Sheikh Zayed died in 2004, 
MBZ became UAE, UAE Crown Prince and Deputy Commander of the UAE Armed Forces. This past week, he became the third president of the UAE, only 50 years after its founding. So that's my little, little, little history review of the UAE, you know, on the occasion of, of the third, pre, you know, the third uh, president to be named. Uh, and I just always think it's useful to be re reminded that uh, these are all recent, uh, recent states and uh, they've grown enormously quickly and they play a role on the, on the global stage. It seems outsized for their size, but it's good to remember they're pretty new. You can't possibly get a smoother transition of power than what just happened in the United Arab Emirates. <laughs> no, no. Um, yeah, exactly. Please. Especially, you know, as you, yeah, as you were going to say, you know, since he's been acting since 2014. Indeed. And uh, virtually every uh, ruler of each of the emirates got together and just said, hey, you're the guy. Um, very interesting um, bio on MBZ. And that, that's a great I mean, this is a really important issue. Uh, it's a really important situation going on in the UAE, but a very smooth transition to power. MBZ has nine children, which I think is amazing. Um, just in awe of that. Um, he's a lifelong fan of falconry. He's a really interesting guy. He also is older than he looks which I don't, I don't mean to be like surface level, but he's 62, um, does not look that. People often compare him to Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who's you know roughly half his age. Um, but the two are very reform minded. And I think this is, um, you know, this is, a, this is a big deal that, I mean, Vice President Harris flew over on Monday, may have passed Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's jet on the way in, um, who visited just after Vice President Harris. But um, smooth transition to power, very important U.S. ally in the region. So there's a lot here that's interesting. Rest in peace um, to the Sheikh. Sheikh Khalifa, yeah, Sheikh Khalifa, who, who, who was, was, did a good job in himself. And he actually, you know, uh, oversaw an extraordinary change in, in the UAE during his basically decade from 2004 to 2014 when he, he was, he had the stroke. Uh, but, and he was considered a kind and, and um, you know, a capable leader. Yeah. You mentioned of uh, vice president Kamala Harris and this is my, this is, it looks like it might be an opportunity because they sent out a really strong delegation. He had secretary of state, Anthony Blinken, defense secretary, Lloyd Austin, climate envoy, John Kerry and CIA director, Bill Burns. And I think the seniority of the delegation made them happy. Mm -hmm. You know, they, 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 they've been saying you got to pay closer attention and, and be more attentive to what uh, what we think we need. So this might might have been a good positive opportunity with regard to the U.S. UAE relations. One of the areas in which he's reformed a lot in the UAE, and it's not really as well known is the military in the UAE has undergone drastic transformation. And he graduated from the Royal Military Academy in Sandhurst. So he's a military guy, but um, just a very interesting very interesting uh, transition of power. And like you said, he's been sort of running the day to day for what, seven or eight years now. So since 2014. So, you know, ten, eight years. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Impressive. Um, impressive guy. And um, yeah, condolences to our Emirati friends. Um, I guess 40 days of mourning. And uh, but again, it's quite nice, as you say, to have such a smooth transition and, and obviously a capable successor. So they're in good hands. Indeed. Richard, my one big thing this week is a pretty interesting move by the Saudi Public Investment Fund. The PIF is starting a new company, the boldly named Saudi Coffee Company, which will, quote, provide support to the national coffee industry through the entire supply chain from bean to cup. 
It will also play a key role in developing production in the southern Jazan region, home to its coffee Arabica, it said. The Saudi coffee company plans over the next 10 years to invest nearly 1.2 billion Saudi rials, that's about $320 million, in the national coffee industry with the goal of boosting the country's production from 300 tons per year to 2,500 tons per year. The company also aims to establish a dedicated academy to train local talent, entrepreneurs, coffee plantation owners, and farmers as part of the PIF's focus on creating opportunities for small businesses and startups. So there's a little bit to get in here, Richard. You know that I love coffee so much. In fact, I could just drink only coffee for the rest of my life and be totally happy. And I love Saudi coffee too. And it's very unique. I think it's an underserved market in the US. But um, I don't want to reveal any business plans. Um, this is, um, I think this is interesting, Richard. I, I think we, we talked about this a little bit this week. This is not just about production, uh, and supply for exports. This is also about consumption. Saudis are huge coffee drinkers. Data mm-hmm. on this is a little hard to find, but Saudi Arabia is the 10th largest per capita consumer of coffee in the world. It actually imports a tremendous amount of coffee to meet that demand. Um, and this move didn't come out of the blue. There's been some movement in this space. Um, in January, um, the commercial name for Arabic coffee was officially changed to Saudi coffee in the kingdom's restaurants, cafes, stores, and roasters. I think another point that I want to make about this and why I think it's interesting is if you read this press release, this isn't the normal PIF playbook, um, which is uh, sort of in the mergers and acquisitions mindset, it, it would seem. Um, this is starting a new company from scratch and entering it into the market, but it really reads like it's starting a new industry or really like they're starting a ministry of co- uh, a, a ministry of coffee. Um, the press release says, you know, the Saudi coffee company, private company would be in partnership with the private sector and, quote, support the kingdom's coffee industry along its entire value chain, creating an academy to learn about coffee. It's just a little confusing because this is a this is not just you know, creating a new company to enter a, a marketplace where there are already competition. This is a new company that hopefully, if successful, will dominate the marketplace. So it's just interesting and, and a very ambitious set of goals here for this new company, kind of off the playbook, typically for the PIF. Well, is it? And that's, uh, and that's the question. And, and let, me, let me foreshadow a little bit. On uh, June 26th, where you've invited John Sfakianakis, who was a good friend of ours. He's a tremendous mm-hmm. economist. Mm-hmm. Uh, he works with the Gulf Research Center, Chatham House, but he's a banking background. Um, and one of the things when, I, when we were talking about him coming on is I said, John, I want you to tell me what PIF is. What is it? Because I think it's a brand new thing. It's, you know, it's doing things that are, are, are simply not uh, traditional for a sovereign wealth fund. Uh, and this is an example of that. And, and I think it's, it's done this, you know, in other areas, but this is, you know, essentially, like you say, building a whole new uh, sector uh, and then, you know, inviting uh, the private sector to come in. And it, it, again, PIF, you know, continues to fascinate me and everything they do. You're right. If they do nothing else, but replace imports, uh, it will be a bonus because um, I was reading in, in uh, domestic consumption in Saudi Arabia, according to Euromonitor, it will increase by 5% each year through 2026, reaching an estimated annual consumption of approximately 28,700 tons of coffee, which is more than 10 times the target volume for the new production investment. So in other words, you know, they're, 
they could they could you know this this new coffee initiative could be a rousing success and just barely put a dent in domestic consumption because the Saudis love their coffee. Similar to natural gas in that way. I mean, the big thing was just sort of replacing the the imports of natural gas um, as they developed a natural gas industry. Um, Saudis love coffee. Saudis absolutely love coffee, and so do I. (laughs) So, Yeah, and you had mentioned that Saudi Arabia has become the biggest importer of Ethiopian coffees just ahead of Germany, Japan, and the United States, according to the the USDA, Foreign Mm -hmm. Agriculture Service. So... uh, so this is consistent in many ways. And, and, and I'll tell you, it, it's consistent. It, it we'll do, you know, three ways. One, uh, it's in, in putting forward sort of a, a, a cultural tradition. Coffee's big in Saudi Arabia and it's a, and traditionally been a very important part of its identity. Two, uh, it's just like PIF to try and basically, you know, jumpstart a sector and industry that should create jobs and, uh, tech, you know, increase technical capability. And three, it pisses off other people. There's all sorts of coffee aficionados that are, you know, just beside themselves that they named it Saudi coffee because, of course, and you're the coffee expert, but, you know, coffee claims many origins and there's many different types of, of, of coffee. And, you know, the purists were, you know, very upset that Saudi Arabia would presume to do this. And I, I think there is a distinctive Saudi coffee, which is what they're talking about here. But uh, anyway, like I say, this is, you know, this is typical in many ways in that it's it's. It's innovative, it's aggressive, it's aspirational, and also irritates the people. <laughs> I would have gone with Kingdom Coffee Company. I think that has a better ring to it, but that's just a personal preference. Um, <laughs> but yeah, very interesting. Um, it's interesting to me that coffee is so widely consumed across virtually all countries and and many cultures. It's it's like a many people like it. It's funny though that my colleague and co-host here does not like it very much um, and is not a coffee drinker. He's a tea guy, which is good. We got the whole balance here. So we'll do yeah. when they start the Saudi tea company, we'll, you know, we'll trade off the one big thing and uh, <laughs> yeah. have you do that. Um, this is very cool. And as we've mentioned, we've done a segment on coffee before, but I really, really love Arabic coffee. It's lighter roasted. It is like tea. It's flavored with cardamom. Um, it's served in a dollar or from a dollar and it's just so delicious and you can put so much of it back and you can just get completely jacked up on caffeine. It's the best. <laughs> By the way, and if, if there's any coffee that I like, it's that. Yeah. Oh, you love it when we're there. Yeah. You, you yeah. crush it when you're there. <laughs> I don't, you know, I'm not a big fan of, uh, of, of Saudi coffee. And now that, you know, my, uh, all my family members drink coffee now. So I'm the, I'm the lone holdout. So in the morning ritual, I'm just a sad, you know, sad dad in the corner. What do you drink in the morning for your, for your boost? Or is it just a, it's a pure situation? Uh, a variety of things. Things I like cold and crisp. <laughs> I'm not going to admit what I drink in the morning. <laughs> that could be <laughs> beer, but I'm not, let's, no more questions. <laughs> it could be a problem. Somebody might send in a hotline. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um. Richard, no special guests this week. We have a couple of weeks coming up with a few special guests, so we do have to give ourselves a break. Plus, we were supposed to be on vacation this week, but again, there's just too much going on. We wanted to do this. We have a really good streak going. So, you know, when you do a daily newsletter and you do this, vacation is just a rumor. Indeed. But I remember like four or five years ago in, you know, during downtimes, like in Ramadan and maybe in August, there'd be virtually nothing going on. It just seems like there isn't anything like that anymore. It's just constant. So, um, but it's a good problem to have. Saudi no longer knows how to relax. (laughs) Um, (laughs) 
Let's get to yellow. What do you think? Saudi in a minute. Yellow. Yellow. Saudi in a minute. Yellow. (laughs) (laughs) It's never not funny. (laughs) Not to us, for sure. (laughs) Number one, first yellow. Saudi production capacity to reach 13.3 million to 13.4 million barrels per day by 2026-27. Saudi Arabia's crude production capacity is poised to reach 13.3 million 13.4 13.4 million barrels per day by end of 2026 or early 2027, as it looks to ramp up work at the neutral zone fields with Kuwait. Energy Mr. P- Minister Prince Abdulaziz bin Salman noted this on May 16th, and that the current kingdom currently has the capacity to pump more than 12 million barrels per day of crude. Interesting. So he just using a little bit of the back of the napkin math, if current capacity is 12 million barrels per day, and then he's saying that most of the new production coming online is from the neutral zone that should produce somewhere just under 1.3 and to 1.4 billion, uh, a million barrels per day, excuse me. Um, Riyadh has traditionally maintained a 2 million barrel per day spare capacity buffer, which is used uh, on request to help maintain global market stability. So interesting. It gives us a little bit of data on that um, neutral zone between Saudi and uh, um, Kuwait. It uh, it does. It's interesting. And and uh, as ever, the Saudis are investing. Like you say, they like to keep that one to two million barrels per day cushion. Uh, Prince Abdulaziz, in, in, in commenting on this, had some interesting things to say. And let me, let me add these things. Uh, quote: Please invest. And he's talking to the to global, you know, to the to the media. Please invest in the current existing fields and and fields that will have quick payback period. Don't invest in green fields because the energy markets will transition where these green fields will no longer be required. And we're seeing a lot of that, obviously, and, and uh, capital investment is way down for uh, uh, major multinational oil corporations. Uh, and then he goes on to say, uh, even for Saudi Arabia, it takes six to seven years of work to bring 1 million barrels a day online. Quote, it is about pre-engineering, pipes, wells to be drilled. It's not switch on, switch off. If you don't do it properly, you look inefficient, he said. Um, he also reiterated there was not only uh, a lack of upstream investment, but the dearth of refining capacity was causing a, a, you know, a dislocation in refined products, which we're seeing a lot in the U.S., big time in terms of the refining problems. But anyway, it's interesting, interesting because you know, Saudi Arabia just keeps plugging. They build their capacity. They think it's important. They make the investment. But this is an interesting point. He says, you know, given the current environment, you know, it's not unlikely that you're going to build a brand new installation, uh, you know, expand what you have. That's what the Saudis are doing. He also used the term backwardation, which is one of my favorite economic terms being, of course, when the spot price of an underlying asset is higher (laughs) than prices trading in the futures market, um, which is literally exactly what's happening with oil right now. So, um, like we mentioned last week, whenever he talks, it just everyone listens, the markets listen. Um, it creates a lot of news. And um, yeah, that's this is I mean, this is very interesting. So 13.3 to 13.4 million barrels per day of capacity. That's in, that's crazy. That's in four or five years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, so we'll see what the market says. They've been obviously we know that Saudi Arabia and the U.S. has been a little bit at loggerheads on the issue of increased production. And the Saudis have pointed out that we have a you know, we have a program with OPEC plus that's increases monthly, although they haven't hit their numbers. But more importantly, I think from the Saudi perspective, apart from wanting to keep that OPEC plus relationship intact and agreement intact, is they don't know where the markets are going. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, with China and the COVID situation there with Ukraine uh, markets, you know, obviously price of oil went up to 130 plus, but it's back down to under 100. And uh, even the IEA, which has been talking about, you know, enormous amounts of, of, uh, of oil coming off the markets have moved, readjusted and saying they're not going to lose as much as anticipated, maybe 1.5 million barrels. Point being is the Saudis are, uh, are trying to be pretty conservative and steady on their oil policy while expanding capacity. Well, it may not matter soon, Richard, because uh, President Biden and Italian Prime Minister Mario Draghi agreed that it would probably be a good idea to create a OPEC version for consumers of oil, which is not how it works. But, um, <laughs> you know, the politics of oil are always, always entertaining and interesting. So and you've uh, got this NOPEC in Congress, which we won't go into, but it's kind of how much time do you have? I'm just no, kidding. <laughs> number two, yellow. Number Let's two, yellow number Let's two. <laughs> How expats can apply for Saudi Arabia's premium residency visa in three simple steps. This is awesome, Richard. Eligible expats can now apply for Saudi Arabia's premium residency visa in three simple steps through its newly announced unified national platform for visas, chaired by the kingdom's prime minister, King Salman bin Abdulaziz. The Saudi cabinet revealed a slew of new regulations on Tuesday, May 17th, including the organization of a premium residency center and the unified national platform for visas under the jurisdiction of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Why not? Yeah, they just that was just announced. And as with so many things, it was announced what new a slew of new regulations on Tuesday, May 17th. Mm -hmm. I think you noted that fresh out of the hospital, we should mention. Uh, King Salman, straight to the cabinet meeting. <laughs> and this premium residency center. So if you go to the website, it's pretty straightforward. And, I, you know, it, it speaks to Saudi's uh, increasing pension for having, you know, having their bureaucratic and administrative ducks in a row. So uh, it's fascinating. And d d you went into the details. I mean, you can get a, that, that SP1 for uh, 800,000 Saudi rials, uh, which gives you... Uh, permitted to live in Saudi Arabia indefinitely under the permanent SP1 scheme. And uh, you have a host of other benefits, or you can do the SP2 plan, SP2 plan, which is a hundred Saudi rials a year. Until no longer needed, sig Significantly cheaper. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think, you know, you get a, it's not as, you know, it's like any plan, you know, any tiered plan, it doesn't quite give you the same benefits. <laughs> Um, a lot in this premium residency thing that's really interesting. You can use it to conduct businesses, sponsor visa visits for relatives, buy and own real estate, which is new, um, to employ domestic worker workers such as housemaids. It's almost like being a Saudi. Um, very cool. Seriously, if you had the money, if you had the money and you were going to be there for any length of time, uh, it's, it's absolutely worth it. I mean, just especially if you're bringing family. I mean, it, you know, from just bringing in dependents is it can be really problematic if you're not a citizen. Mm -hmm. um, you know, as you say, ability to buy and own real real estate. You know, that, that basically you can um, employ domestic workers. You know, it, it's it's you know, they're, they're, I, I don't. I, I suspect this will be uh, a really attractive option for a lot of people in Saudi Arabia. Indeed. And what's interesting is that's another source of income. You're not giving away any residency. You're not giving any citizenship. You're just giving certain residency perks. Uh, and, and, and like everything they're trying to do in Saudi, they're monetizing that. They should. I mean, they, they've recently, um, I guess not recently now, it was 2017, they introduced tourist visas. I might be a little early on that date, but 
they're just, this is progress and this is, um, a step in the right direction. Well, uh, yeah. And, and I don't know if it makes it more attractive for, for highly skilled workers. Those are different things. I think those are citizenship things and that's a yeah. different track. But if you're a really well-paid or a wealthy uh, businessman who's spending a lot of time over there and you're, you want your family to be over there and you want things to be go pretty smoothly, or you want to buy real estate or own a car or, or get through the airports, just like a Saudi. Um, nice. Mm-hmm. Um, we nice. may have gotten out of, out of turn here, but I'm I think I did. You. I'm sorry. That was me. As soon as I started reading it, I was like, Oh, I think so I did the I'm, second one. So we're going to switch We're going to do a little switcheroo. Okay. You know, you know, you know, we have to be quick on our feet. Uh, <laughs> so number three, I'm just going to go with, uh, Saudi ministry malls, two day weekend for all private sector workers. Uh, Saudi Arabia's ministry of human resources and social De- development has said that it is studying the prospects of amending the labor law article related to working hours to increase the weekly week, weekly off weekly time off to two days for all workers in the private sector, according to the Saudi Gazette. Now, uh, you may be the kind of, I, I included this simply because I think for most people that would be, oh my goodness, really? You, you know, you're, you're working five and a half days a week, which was standard for the private sector. So they'd come in, you know, their week was, you know, uh, to Thursday and then their weekend typically was Friday and Saturday. Uh, and, you know, so they're coming in, essentially for half of the day of what we would be call our Saturday. Um, and that's been the practice. And I think, I think clearly there's been a lot of uh, push to amend that uh, in large part. So, because, because, you know, that doesn't make the private sector very attractive as compared to the public sector, which has a full two days off. So I'm interested in how this works because if it's the private sector, um, I mean, what if you work seven days a week and you're in the private sector? Can you like file a complaint and say, hey, they're making me work too much? Or is it I mean, is it a, sort of a guideline? How is it? Think, is it? Is there an affor- enforcement angle to this, I guess, is my question. I think it's part and parcel to trying to uh, right size the workplace anyway, probably coming along with what they're trying to do and make everything uh, equitable in terms of women in the workplace, you know, examining exactly what the situation is. I tell you, in my personal opinion, this is. Uh, you know, for years and years and years, Saudi Arabia, the Saudi economy ran on, on, on low paid expats, you know, third country nationals would come in and, and really they're there without their family. They have nothing to do but work. And so you could sort of, uh, you know, you could sort of set it up this way. So you got maximum amount of hours from this workforce. And I think as time goes on, people are understanding that's not really particularly equitable or fair. And they're looking at adjusting it Mm -hmm. or attractive from an investment standpoint. I mean, I think this is where the world is going Um, a more solid and stable weekend or even a longer weekend or in Europe, just the whole week is a weekend. Um, But um, (laughs) just there's been so much in the labor sector in terms of reforms recently for Saudi Arabia, stuff that doesn't get top level headline stuff. But um, this is very interesting. Yeah, I, like I said, I threw it in because people, most people probably don't know, but uh, it is something I think that needs to be you know, amended. Number four. Now I'm all messed up here, Richard. This is gonna, might be a surprise. Which one are you going to go with? I'm, I'm anxiously <laughs> awaiting. 100 religious leaders gather yes. in Saudi Arabia for a groundbreaking <laughs> conference. This is my favorite one of all the ones we're doing this week, Richard. The Muslim, Muslim World League has completed the Forum on Common Values Among Religious Followers event in Riyadh. 
from the 11th through 12th of May this year. The forum, for the first time in history, convened within Saudi Arabia Christian, Jewish, Hindu, and Buddhist religious leaders alongside Islamic leaders to explore shared values and a common global vision for interfaith cooperation. Approximately 100 religious leaders attended the first uh, of its kind conference, including over 15 rabbis. I, I put this in here largely because when you when you looked around, the only places that covered this were Saudi press and Israeli press. Mm-hmm. Didn't hear a peep of this in the U.S. And it's an interesting and it's unfortunate because it's an, an effort. This is hosted in, in Riyadh. It's an effort, continued effort by the Muslim World League and its head, Muhammad Alisa, to uh, reposition Saudi's approach and be much more uh, open and, and interdenominational and inclusive. And you have very positive comments from the, the, the lead rabbi in, in Israel about this, his experience there. And, uh, you know, it, it was to, to, to all the participants, you know, widely welcomed and, and people thought it went off well and it was a really constructive effort. Uh, but again, you don't hear about it in the U.S. And, and you know, Saudi Arabia gets paying for a lot of things. It's, people are questioning its commitment to this. I mean, uh, there's an interesting article about the number of Qurans that in and of themselves that are printed by Saudi Arabia that may be problematic and are distributed all over, the, all over the world. So, you know, people question, what is the depth of this more moderate Islam Islam that, that both the Muslim World League and specifically Mohammed bin Salman is, is uh, trying to promote? I mean, I think you can nitpick, but uh, the direction is positive. Uh, people within, you know, many different denominations, you know, Christian, Jewish, Hindu, Buddhist, they're all gathering here in Riyadh to uh, this is something new and it's, and I think it's got to be positive. It would have been nice if it got a little more play in Western press. Richard, we've been doing stuff or we've been seeing interfaith dialogue efforts from Saudi Arabia. At least I have um, for 13 years now um, when we did the U S Saudi forum series, which was three extremely large conferences, um, business opportunities forums in Chicago, Los Angeles, and Atlanta. Um, there was always a religious interfaith dialogue element to it, which is cool. Just what a righteous um, event this was for the Saudis to hold. We, Richard, we included in our quoted section uh, at the top of our newsletter, um, daily newsletter. We do that just to highlight what people are actually saying about Saudi Arabia, sort of a nice, warm open into the newsletter um, featuring you know quotes from newsmakers. Today, we used a quote from an evangelical pastor who attended, Bob Roberts, um, who said, quote, in a, in a written piece, Quote, why should we work with Saudi Arabia and uh, their leaders, even knowing that their track record on human rights is challenging? These are serious issues and should not be dismissed. But when someone moves forward in a positive direction, we should affirm those steps. These changes in Saudi Arabia are real, both those from the West who visit and see it, uh, as do citizens of the Saudi kingdom see it. So it's just, I mean, every time you do something like this, minds change, you know, pastors, rabbis come to visit Saudi Arabia, see what's going on, see that it's different. This is just a little bit of progress. Um, but you just, you know, almost virtually all wars that have been started before, you know, 1950 were religious based. So, you know, getting a common humanity together and getting, um, religious leaders together to talk and, you know, form friendships and bonds is definitely a good thing. 
That was a good poll for the, um, <clears throat> the review today on that one. Um, we had number five. Number five, Saudi students win six prizes in U.S. science, co- science contests. I really wanted to include this because I had a number of notes from Saudi friends who uh, were really excited about this. And in fact, the let me read this. But So Saudi mm-hmm. students picked up six prizes at the Regeneron International Science and Engineering Fair 2022 in Atlanta, Georgia, equaling their record haul for the 16th year in a row. Arab News reports that the ISEF 2022 saw the participation of pre-college students from over 80 countries in the biggest competition showcasing innovation and scientific research and advancement. And these, so there were six prizes, but there were, you know, for the Saudi, there were 23 winners who got some sort of rec- uh, recognition. And they were met at the airport when they came back. People were so excited about this. This is a huge uh, event uh, put on by the Society for Science. It's been doing it since 1950. Uh, one of the young uh, Saudis, Abdullah Al-Ghamdi of Dammam, 17, received one of the two Regeneron Young Scientist Awards of 50000 dollars for modifying a metal organic material so it can be used to both extract hydrogen from water and safely store it for clean energy production. Anyway, like I said, uh, this is this was widely acclaimed in, you know, in Saudi. People were delighted and they're obviously they're proud of their own. This is just such a good story. Richard, can you believe that the Atlanta forum we did, and I'm sorry to mention it again, was 11 years ago, 11 and a half years ago. That in Chicago and Los Angeles where we we had these forums is where we met so many young Saudis here on scholarship. And it's so cool to see them all blossoming today. But what's happening in this story is is really cool. It just shows an advancement of um, really just a booming Saudi youth and, and a, a growingly educated Saudi youth that are doing really cool things in the field of science. And just a really great story, another one that doesn't get a lot of attention. And that's what we're doing here on the 966. Um, and I just think this is awesome. And it, it, it fits with, uh, I think we did a yellow last week where we talked about the number of Saudi acad- universities and colleges that are being recognized in leading uh, metrics and, mm-hmm. and ranking organizations. I think it's, it's, it has grown consistently over the last five years. So they're headed in the right direction. I think this is exciting. And like I said, our friends, many friends in, in, in Saudi were, wanted to share this. It's great. Number six, the final yellow today, Richard. Number six. Number six. Climate change in the Middle East and North Africa, hosting negotiations and catalyzing action. In March, Dubai hosted the first Middle East and North Africa Climate Week, a United Nations event aimed at strengthening discussions about climate change and climate action among a wide range of regional stakeholders. Regional Climate Weeks are a new engagement mechanism encouraged by the 2021 Glasgow Climate Pact to accelerate regional collaboration. So it was noteworthy that the Middle East and North Africa held the first regional event, given the region's recent transformation from an obstructionist negotiation block to a group of countries with ambitious climate goals. There you go. That captures it all, really, because uh, we put this in here but just to bring attention to this, because this was one of the things coming out of going into, first of all, going into COP26 uh, last November in Glasgow, they did these regional uh, hosting negotiations, trying to get uh, feedback from specific regions. There wasn't even a Middle East one there, Middle East and North Africa going into 2021. This is new. Uh, so that the Middle East and North Africa get their own region. So, and also I think it's notable because it's the first one of any of the regions in the lead up to uh, COP27 in Egypt later this year. 
it's the first one that's been done. So uh, I, I think, you know, that last sentence you said, recent transformation from an obstructionist negotiation block to a group of countries with ambitious climate goals uh, is definitely, definitely accurate. They're trying to get their ducks in a row so their message is heard. Their message isn't necessarily the same as others. Um, so it, it's, uh, I think it's notable that it came off and, and it seems to have been an effective uh, conference. It's a great piece in the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington from Kareem El-Jendi, um, who is cordially invited to join us on the podcast at some point. Um, just had a really good sort of take on all of this, um, sort of highlighting the region's, exp- quote, expanding ambitions also suggested it was trying to wrest control of the steering wheel to steer the global economy in a direction that better suits its interests. Um, just cool. And we've we've had um, Adam Siminski on the podcast. We've talked a little bit about the Saudi uh vision for the circular carbon economy. Um, really a, an interesting space, a lot going on. Richard, you saw this week the uh, UN Secretary General um, Gutierrez had some comments on climate change and was sort of uh, very critical of, of fossil fuels and oil. Um, definitely a busy space right now. Yes, I want, let me uh, come back and follow up. That, that uh, Kareem El-Gendi um, piece and is a good one. And he talks about the, the potential direction when you have this, this next one, COP27 is going to be Egypt, which has a different one take. And then, then next year's is going to be in, in Abu Dhabi, who might, has a, might have another take. But uh, again, they're at the table. They're trying to, uh, you know, trying to get their voices heard and trying to get to a reasonable outcome that gets us some some palatable adult results, which, as you say, Gutierrez doesn't think we're close to. A lot of people don't think we're close to. Uh, do you know when the date is for the Egypt COP? I, I, I think it's in November. November. OK, but so I'm it won't not, be peak summer because I would not, provide a nice <laughs> backdrop uh, in Egypt for all this. <laughs> yeah, I'm not certain. <laughs> um, yeah, very, very interesting. So you said it's in Egypt and then in um, Abu Dhabi the following this year. This year in Egypt, next year in Abu Dhabi, yeah. Nice. Okay. Great. Well, Richard, great episode, a little shorter this week. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it because they will be back with special guests next week and the following weeks as well. So a nice little breather for us. Short, um, short but sweet. Yeah, we need these interludes, actually, to be honest, because we're scheduled out into in, in July now. And, you know, it's good to have a, a, a little bit of a less of a heavy week in terms of prep and that sort of thing. Indeed. It has to happen very rarely, but it's happening now. Yeah. And um, thank you to everybody who's been here with us today. Again, subscribe to us on YouTube or uh, wherever you get your podcast. Helps us a lot. Leave us a review. That's great. It's also, Richard, really quickly before we end, it's so cool. We see all the feedback that people send us via email or comments yeah. on our YouTube channel, um, comments on our podcast channel. We see it all. We love all the suggestions and the compliments and stuff. Um, we are kind of overwhelmed uh, with joy at the reception that this has received. This is truly just an idea to record ourselves talking about what we would normally talk about. And then uh, here we are. So thank you to everybody who's who's listening and, and following us. It's, it means a lot. It's nice to have affirmation that it was a good idea. <laughs> Shukran, Mr. Wilson. Enjoy. We'll talk soon. Thank you, Lucian.